more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Adrian Gallo. And I'm Brian Lynn. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoc fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you are a graduate student or postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Emily Richardson, a Master's of Engineering student in the Energy Systems Program. Welcome, Emily. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am super excited, and just as a disclaimer for all the listeners, I met Emily at a uh, friend's birthday party and learned about your research and said, you have to come on air. <laughs> so I'm super happy you did come on air and, and, and heeded me because now we get to speak on air. But before we get into your research on energy systems and the things that you're learning in the master's program, first, give us a tangible example of a really high demand of energy, especially for a hot drink. Yeah. Uh, so what you're referring to is... Uh, Almost every day in the UK, there is a huge spike of demand for electricity, and that tends to happen at around 6 p.m. their time, and it is at the end of the East Siders, which is a very popular British soap opera. Um, and once the, pro- <laughs> once the program ends, we have millions of tea kettles all get turned on at the same time. And this puts a huge strain on their energy system because you go from having basically an equivalent of 2,000 extra homes hooked up to this system that originally was totally fine um, and doing its own thing, totally stable. Um, And the reason this is such a big issue is because electricity is made when you use it. We don't have really good ways of storing it, so it's an on-demand system. So when you add 2,000 extra homes onto your energy system, you need to pull power from other places, and you need to coordinate with other places to be able to get that power. Um, And so uh, the UK tends to work with uh, France, which has a bunch of nuclear power, which they tend to export across their borders. And then they also tend to work with Scotland, because Scotland has a bunch of hydro that is very easy to increase capacity very quickly. And so at 6 p.m., they have a huge amount of power coming from these two uh, neighboring countries pouring through the border um, to be able to handle the extra load of all those tea kettles coming on at once. So it's a very, very fun and interesting power system issue that they see every day, and they have 
set aside people who are specifically in charge of making sure that things don't break when that happens. It's a little bit of tea kettle magic, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. But in the U.S., we have similar issues. Uh, we have similar things with um, electricity, with our programs. But also, when you think about it, what's another giant event that ten people tend to watch all at the same time? And that would be the Super Bowl. And the thing that we we see more of as opposed to electricity demand is water system demand. So you have what's called the Super Bowl flush. <laughs> and that is when everybody during halftime goes and uses the toilet all at once. And water systems are actually designed to be able to handle that capacity. Um, that's something that they think about. It's not necessarily only the Super Bowl, but yeah, larger events that everybody's going to be watching at the same time. You have to have your systems be able to handle that demand. So. For, for non-Americans, you're probably thinking, what's the Super Bowl? Uh, <laughs> obviously, the equivalent would be the World Cup, yes. where there's no commercials for 45 minutes, and the second the half ends, everyone runs to the bathroom. But you can imagine if you live you know, in a 200-person apartment building, ev everyone in every other country in the world is watching, this, is watching the World Cup, and just everyone has to flush the toilet at the same time. <laughs> That's a, I mean, talk about a surge amount of, of usage. Um, yeah, but w what the plumbing example and the tea kettle example uh, emphasizes is that um, there can be really high and extreme demands for water and electricity, but it can be planned for mm -hmm. um, and it can be kind of incorporated into the infrastructure so long as there's adequate planning. Um, you mentioned how energy is on demand. So let's dive into that a little bit. Can you describe the difference between uh, baseload energy and why that's kind of immovable mm -hmm. and the other forms of energy that are a little bit more sporadic? Yeah, definitely. So the, the, the term baseload comes from the fact that we have some energy generation that's really hard to change the output. Nuclear is a really good example of that. It takes a lot of time and effort to change the amount of output from a nuclear facility. And that's just because it's really hard to shut them off. Um, <laughs> we have a lot of really well-trained well engineers who work around the clock to make sure that they function. And when they need to ramp them down, there's a set procedure that takes a specific amount of time. And we don't want to be doing that all the time. So nuclear facilities tend to be left on at a specific load continuously. And that's what we call base load. Uh, for, for other listeners who may have listened to a couple of nuclear episodes a while ago, we mentioned the safety systems that, that are now being designed in next-gen nuclear reactors. Um, those work to slow and stop the reaction pretty quickly, mm -hmm. but to get them back up to speed is a whole nother hurdle entirely, which is why from the safety systems standpoint, nuclear energy has a or newer um, and newer nuclear plants have a, a really effective way to, to power them down. It's the powering them back up in this yeah. emergency situation that is really difficult. So on the baseload side, if you want to slow down this energy output, it takes a while. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense, right? It's real easy to take a nap. It's real hard to wake up from one. <laughs> exactly. That's a perfect example. Especially yeah. in week nine of week 10 of the quarter. Yeah. Oh, I don't geez. know. I don't, know I don't even know. Okay. So, so that's baseload. It's kind of mm -hmm. always there, omnipresent, difficult to kind of shift up and down depending on the demand. What's, yeah. What are some of the other forms? So the other forms are what we call rampable sources. And so we have rampable sources and then we also have uh, what we categorize tend to say as renewable sources. And so those are in two different buckets and I'll sort of explain why they're in two different buckets in a second. But we'll start with the traditional rampable sources, and that's um, 
uh, turbines. So anything that we can push water through, whether that be in the form of water or steam, um, those tend to be the turbine uh, uh, combustion sources. So that could be powered by coal, that could be powered by natural gas. Um, those are traditional uh, generation sources that we've been using for a very long time, and we know how they work. And if you just change the amount of fuel you put in them, they will give a different amount of output. So those are very easy to ramp up and ramp down. Um, and those, uh, those we tend to, uh, when we remove load down to base load, those are the sources that we tend to turn off. Um, and then we have our renewable generation, which are solar panels and wind turbines. And those both technically can be shut off, um, but we tend not to want to because we really like having clean power. And so we get into this tug of war um, when it comes to uh, renewable sources or quote unquote low carbon energy sources. So that includes uh, nuclear power and these traditional uh, rampable uh, generation sources because we are very comfortable using these spinning turbines. We're very used to how they how they operate. We know how they work. We know how to ramp them up and down. Um, they're on demand, basically, so we can, uh, as long as we have fuel for them, we can do what we want with them, uh, whereas uh, renewables are a little bit trickier. You have to have a little bit better prediction when it comes to weather. You have to have a little bit better understanding when it comes to when you're going to need power and how your system in particular responds to it. So those are the main forms of generation that we have on our system currently. And I'm sure there will be many more in the renewables buckets. We also have geothermal. We also have marine energy, which that one is not quite yet at a utility scale. But there's plenty of research being done on it here on campus even. Um, at the Energy Center, and there's also a wonderful location uh, in Newport that they're doing a bunch of research there as well. So hopefully we'll be seeing tidal and wave energy coming on as one of those sources. But as of right now, it's not quite at the, at the utility level yet. So, um, so far we're talking about the renewable side of things from the energy generation standpoint, especially from the standpoint of utility companies. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, Tell us how our current energy infrastructure was built with the idea that energy was really a one-way street of, um, you know, there were large facilities that generated the energy. It was transported and used in homes. And then later we'll get into the solar panel on rooftops issue <laughs> that yeah. now it's not a one-way street anymore, but we'll, we'll tackle that later. Yeah. So first I'll sort of talk about like what is and like, how do we make electricity? How do we get it to your home? Why does it look the way it does? I'm sure a lot of people have heard the term AC, alternating current. Like that's a really big concept that's really important in the way that we actually make electricity. And so um, when we're getting it to your home, when you see, uh, if you plug something into your outlet and you see that um, 120 volt, uh, 60 hertz signal, 60 hertz means that it's, Clicking back and forth. It's a sinusoid, so it's a sine wave. Um, sort of looks like a wave in the ocean. And it is moving and switching between positive and negative 60 times a second. And what does that actually mean? Well, that actually means that the things that are generating that power, you have these giant turbines, giant spinning objects 
that are all rotating together at that speed. So when we say we're bringing generation online and syncing it with the current grid, it means we are physically spinning every single turbine at the same speed and they are physically connected. So we have the Western Interconnect is the electricity system that we're on that goes from Canada all the way down to the Mexican border. This entire swath of the United States, when you plug your phone to be charged into the outlet, it is all spinning at the same speed. You in Arizona, you're going to get the same frequency coming out of that. And that's because everything is physically connected and rotated. It's crazy. This is something I had not appreciated until after we we spoke. Um, I ad- admittedly, energy and electricity is my weakest point of my STEM background. I'm super scared of it because I don't 100% understand it. And most people don't. Let's be yeah. real. <laughs> I still don't. I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> um, but um, this idea that that all of our power systems are physically connected for me, it was hard to grasp because, you know, the outlet is just an outlet that's connected to the wall. I don't mm-hmm. see the wires, right? Yeah. And I can basically ignore utility poles. I can ignore all the <laughs> other infrastructure, right? Because there's it's, so many good posters on them. How do you know? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. you know, like I, can, I can almost just explicate that entire thing from my mind until mm-hmm. I, I spoke to you and you made this point that, no, 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 the 60 hertz is quite literally things turning on and off. It's all at the same time, physically all synchronous. Moving. Yeah, all synchronously, synchronously moving. And that's sort of when we talk about like hydro dams and, and these gas turbines, you are physically spinning something with water, whether that be in steam or in just water form, you're spinning these turbines at the same rate. And like, that's incredible. It's incredibly powerful. And also, if you've ever spun, say, a merry-go-round or you spun something like a ball on your finger, once you get it going, it doesn't want to stop. <laughs> and that's that's actually something that's built into our electricity, into our into our power system that it's called inertia. And so when something isn't quite going right or we have a little bit more load than we have generation, what happens is the frequency slows down a little bit. But you have these huge physical turbines all spinning, so it takes them a little bit of time to slow down. So we have a little bit of wiggle room that we can fix it pretty quickly. Mm. But if you talk about other other systems that are not physically rotating, you don't get that inertia. So that's a little bit, we'll get into that in a little bit with the solar, but there are a lot of things that make it a little complicated to add these different sorts of generation onto our, our current existing grid. But yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty <laughs> exciting. And if you ever want to hear more about this sort of stuff, Ted Brecken, Dr. Kutia Sanchez, Dr. Waikau, they are amazing. And they're professors here on campus. And, and they're in the uh, energy systems. And they're like, Dr. Brecken is very passionate about talking about how everything is physically, synchronously moving together. And I definitely stole some of that from him. If you've ever been in his <laughs> class, I'm sure you've heard this before. But yeah. If you so miss, what is? 
If, if you miss those names, you can find them on our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. And the title of the blog is Our Energy Systems in Transition, Pushing the Grid Towards Zero Emissions with Emily Richardson. Um, there's a link to the energy systems program that you can find out all about those professors because they are listed there. Uh, Brian. Yeah, so I was going to say, how much energy do you think the Harlem Globetrotters could <laughs> produce <laughs> you through know, their inertia <laughs> you know that that would be that would be a really good thing to test there there actually are some pretty cool systems that we have where um they're putting these tiles down in airports that are um um and it's uh piezoelectric and they actually if you deform them so it's basically a crystal that as you squish it it creates a, a little little bit of voltage and then so if people walk on them they generate a little bit of energy <laughs> and so they're trying to collect energy of people where they walk constantly to be able to to get a little bit of power back that wouldn't power the airport but it's 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 a cool concept <laughs> it might power some led lights along the way or exactly something. yes definitely <laughs> that's, that's it. every time we chat we've chatted a few times there's a new little nugget of energy information that i'm like whoa that's cool. And it's still <laughs> happening, even on air. <laughs> um, okay, so returning to the way our energy infrastructure was built, mm-hmm. um, we talked a little bit about the energy generation and mm-hmm. uh, the the transportation side a little bit, but would you tell us something about transformers? This also blew my <laughs> mind about transformers. Yeah, definitely. So um, when we'll go back to why we have AC. Um, alternating current and the reason that we have it is not because it's everything spinning at once we can sort of get away with that with dc but the reason that we have ac is because um when the energy system first was created we didn't have a very good way of taking lower voltage so uh lower potential uh uh (laughs) lower voltage uh current and being able to step it up to higher voltage And the reason that we care about that is because when you're going to transport electricity really, really far, you want to have it as a high of potential as possible. And that's because um, if you look at the equations for how we lose lose energy and uh, inefficiencies, they're called I-square-R losses. And that means that the current in the line squared times the resistance of the line of the wire is going to create heat. And so when we go really, really far, if you have a really high current, um, you will have a bunch of losses. And so we transport energy, electricity at really, really high voltages because um, power equals voltage times current. So as you raise up the voltage, the current proportionately goes down. So if we have really, really high voltage lines, and really, really low current, it means that it'll be more efficient to move electricity that way. And the only way that we were able to do that is just by looping wire in circles uh, around a bar iron and then looping a different number of uh, loops around another bar of iron, and it's called a transformer. So we transform, if you have less uh, loops on one side and more loops on the other, you have a difference, you get more current on one side and more voltage on the other. And so we get the, we have the ability by just changing the ratio of the number of loops on each one of these bars of iron. It's more f- fancy than that now. Like, <laughs> it, gets, it gets pretty cool uh, with magnetics. You should definitely look into that. But 
as we change the ratio of these uh, loops on these bars, we're able to step up or step down voltage, which is super important for us to be able to transmit on these really, really long transmission lines and take electricity really far. And so that's how we ended up with alternating periods because it's way easier to just loop some wire than it is to make, now we have power electronic converters. And so with transformers, um, if you ever hear a really, really loud transformer, uh, that's not probably the best sign in the world. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's one thing that um, that's that's sort of a weak point in in the way that we do some of our design when it comes to electrical design. So when you're choosing to step down and step up voltages, um, those transformers, especially at substations, which are where we take really really high voltage and we change the uh, change it down to lower voltage so it can go to your house, those uh, tr transformers are really really big really, really expensive, and really, really hard to get your hands on right now. Because they're really specific to the step up and step down, because the mm -hmm. transportation is a super high voltage across mm -hmm. large distances, but then you need a substation to kind of help to step down that voltage and then make sure it gets into homes at the right voltage, because otherwise your home infrastructure can't handle the high voltage that is used to transport hundreds of miles. Definitely. So like a, a pretty good uh, visual that you can think about is taking, uh, you don't want to take a pressure washer to your house. Um, that's way too aggressive. Um, and your home, it would not end, end well. But you like <laughs> using a garden hose at your house. Um, and so basically the transformers are able to take the pressure and step it down so that it's more usable for you at your homes. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, and if you if you hear a really loud transformer, um, there are many different reasons why it could be that way. It could just be doing a larger uh, voltage drop, or it could be pretty old. And a lot of transformers tend these days tend to be pretty old because a lot of the infrastructure that was designed for energy system is pretty old. Um, it some most of the stuff from the 1800s has been replaced. Don't, let's let's not worry about that stuff. But stuff from the 1950s is still around, and it had a use life of 40 to 50 years. So it's a little overdue to being replaced. But yeah, if if you have something that's buzzing really loud, it's typically an electricity that's not necessarily a good sign. It's just in constant slow motion failure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that. Feels um, relatable. <laughs> yeah. I feel that too. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so um, that helps us give a nice overview of how energy is kind of created in the two buckets of uh, being able to ramp up and the baseload type of energy. Uh, now we know a little bit more of the transportation side of things and why we need these substations and why transformers are pretty cool and nifty, but real difficult to get your hands on because they're super specific and the materials are really hard to get. So if I, if I remember, um, to make a transformer, to order a transformer, the lead time is a year or two? So right now we are having a lot of shipping shortages when it comes to that. So some of the bigger transformers for uh, residential cons customers, yeah, you can have um, three to two year lead times, um, depending on the size that you want. And then when it comes to substation transformers, they tend to be pretty specific. So it's at least a two year lead time just in general. Um, Sometimes you can get lucky and get them sooner, but 
for the most part, designing a substation does take a really long time. So um, it sort of matches up with the, with the amount of time it takes to make the designs. But yeah, transformers right now are pretty, pretty hard to come by. Um, and so if you're, if you're doing some, some upgrades to, to your house um, and you think you may need to upgrade your, uh, your, uh, what your system is getting, maybe think about doing those a little later because it might be a while till you get, <laughs> you get the things you need. <laughs> so um, that helps to paint the picture of what the energy grid power systems kind of look like before. Mm-hmm. But like you mentioned, a lot of these were only built to be around for 50 years and we're pushing 70, 80 plus. And the kind of new wave of what's expected in the next 30 years of our energy future is that the amount of solar is going to increase a lot. The amount of wind is going to increase a lot. And you briefly touched on why these are a little bit harder and trickier to deal with. But let's focus on home solar roof panels just for a moment and talk about why this the energy that is initially supposed to be used for your home let's say you're not home and none of your appliances are using any energy Mm. where does that electricity go and why does that pose some issues yeah so um if you have a a rooftop solar system that is grid connected so you can have one that's not um but most uh utilities require that you connect to through their meter to the grid um that is just coming back onto the grid um and depending on where you are and depending on how big your system is, um, the utility might not have visibility. They might not be able to see how much power you're generating. Um, And if this actually became a really big issue in Hawaii, a lot of people, because electricity in Hawaii is so expensive because they mostly burn uh, diesel fuel or coal, and they're transitioning very rapidly. That is no longer the case. That will not be the case in the next 20 years. But um, they had a lot of people install solar systems on their homes. And there was so much solar power in the middle of the day when nobody was home and nobody was using it um, that it almost backfed their diesel generation unit, which could have been a total disaster. It could have ended really, really poorly. Um, So they basically put... A hold on people being able to uh, turn on their rooftop solar. So people would pay twenty, thirty thousand dollars to have a system put on their house, and they weren't able to use it, which absolutely sucks. Like that is awful, and it, and um, that's that's one of the reason that in Hawaii you see this so dramatically is because they have a small island system. They don't have a bunch of other states to be able to offload their power onto. And so California is a good example. Also, they have way more solar than any place else. Um, And you can actually see how much solar they have um, by looking at the California ISO webpage. Um, It's California Independent Standard Standard Operator. And they're the people who choose what gets to be used for uh, power um, generation. And the amount of solar they have is incredible. it, it can be it's really amazing but it also puts a big strain on their system because they have to ramp down a whole bunch of their um, load or generation from other sources whether that be natural gas or imports from Bonneville Dam um, and you ramp it down until you get to base load and then hope that you don't go into base load because <laughs> there's nothing you can do there and then um, once the sun goes down, you have to ramp everything back up to match demand. 
because um, the way that demand looks in uh, when you look at the grid and you look at when people are home and when there's going to be a spike in when people use things, that's going to be between 6 to 9 a.m. and then between 5 and 8 p.m. And that's not necessarily when the sun is up. <laughs> so that can be a bit challenging. But it's absolutely amazing because once you have the panels made, it's a pretty low maintenance and no fuel required, which is amazing. I'm wondering if in the last couple of years, while everyone was working from home, was this not a problem? That's a really good question. And it's, it wasn't as big of a problem. You didn't have as big of spikes, but you still saw them. You still pe saw people waking up around the same time going to bed around the same time, making dinner around the same time. But it did sort of level out a little bit. Um, and there's been some pretty cool studies, actually, analyzing the difference between COVID times and pre-COVID times. And I'm sure in a couple of years there will be post-COVID times yeah. analysis as well. Yeah, it's pretty. that's a great question. Yeah. For, for the astute listeners, Emily mentioned how California uses the uh, power generated from Bonneville Dam. And Bonneville Dam is the one on the Willamette River in here in Oregon. Yes. Um, if, yeah. you were, if you were unaware, uh, while Oregon produces more hydroelectricity than I think any other state, maybe besides Washington, we actually sell, we, Oregon, uh, sell a lot of that hydroelectric energy to California because... Uh, per California's regulations, they're, if I remember, they're required to prioritize renewable energy before all other forms of energy? They basically have our hydro sort of as a backup um, for the LA area. Um, and I mean, if you're going to make it, and so hydro is one of those resources that's very interesting. If you have a lot of water, you have to run the dams. And so if you have a place that you can send that electricity that you're generating to, instead of having to ramp down the dams or spilling out water because you don't have anywhere else to go, that's really awesome. Um, and so that has been the agreement. There are actually high voltage DC lines directly from Bonneville area down to California. And that is because it is a really great way for when we don't have enough load for the amount of water that we have that is already going to be there and already moving, we're able to exp uh, export it to California. But yeah, no, we, we do have a, a good amount of our generation that is going to California. But here, here's another thing. An electron, once it's on the grid, you have no idea where it's going. It could be going up <laughs> to Canada. It could be going down to California. It could be going to Nevada. You don't know where it goes. And so every electron generated is treated similarly once it's once it's there nobody knows i, I kind of imagine uh, a pac-man map where every space is occupied <laughs> by a, by a pac-man and you just kind of push pac-mans everywhere and like some just spill out in all kinds of random places but there are no empty spaces yeah as soon as one pac-man <laughs> comes in one's got to go out yep. and you know sometimes one is one side is pulling pac-mans faster than the other and you got to hope that someone else is feeding in pac-mans just as fast yep definitely <laughs> and that's that's the job of um independent standard operators or also the balancing authorities um and we can get into the like legislative side if you guys want to <laughs> but i don't know if that that might be a little bit too technical and too policy intensive but okay so <laughs> we admittedly won't get into that but for the best <laughs> <laughs> but um if you do go onto our blog we did list a number of additional resources for listeners to take deeper dives um there's a number of podcasts on there um, actually, I think there's three podcasts on there that yeah. we highly recommend. Um, 
I, okay, I do want to get into one wonky topic because I kind of love this. Yeah. Um, this is the idea that um, let's imagine a couple years into the future mm. where um, and probably more so in California, because I think they have this energy system, energy system a little bit better uh, thought out than other states. But um, during the day, people are away at work. And mm-hmm. the fridge and freezer and the laundry machine and the, all these appliances, they're not really doing anything. But you could run the freezer if you need to. You could run an air compressor if you need to. You could run the laundry if you need to at a time when there's not that much energy demand in the middle of the day and you're not home. Yeah, definitely. Is that, is that, is that in our future? So it's like to pull energy off the grid and at non-peak times, but when we're not really aware? Yeah, that's actually a thing that's a, the... Uh, center of a couple of startups down in California right now, um, and it's called uh, Load. I'm totally blanking on the name, but it's basically uh, Load on Demand. So you're able to say, "Hey, we have a lot of this extra energy that's that's going to be generated. We know it's going to be generated. Do we have any extra load that we can put on?" And so these uh, companies are paying people to say, "Hey." can we put a switch on your hot water heater to turn it on and off when uh, when there's extra energy on the system? And people are like, yeah, sure, you're going to pay me five bucks a month. Like, why not? It's not really going to change that much for me as long as I have hot water when I need a shower and when I need to wash my hands. Like, I'm pretty happy with that. And so you have this new smart quote unquote, smart (laughs) capability um, to be able to say, we know that it's going to be really sunny today and we know there's not a lot going on. Can we turn on your electric car to charge? Can we turn on your hot water heater? Can we change your thermostat? Um, And it's this idea that if you have enough people who say yes to this, you have a pretty decent load that you can turn on and off. And that's huge for um, being able to keep these things balanced. Um, and especially when we have a lot of renewable generation at times that aren't necessarily peak load times, quote unquote. So could we solve this problem by giving everyone a Roomba? You know, <laughs> as long as we could tell the Roomba when to charge and it had a really, really big battery, maybe that would work. Yeah. So you actually, you're, you're, on, you're on the right track of what I was thinking. Um, I've heard a... Um, maybe 10 year into the future idea that once mm. there are enough electric vehicles kind of on board that when you plug your electric vehicle in other people, uh, utility companies maybe mm. will decide whether or not to charge your vehicle right then. Mm-hmm. Or if they know that oh, I'm not going to drive my car tomorrow, you mm-hmm. know, actually I have 50% charge of my battery. I'm just going to give that to the system, right. Mm. To the energy grid. Cause I'm not going to need it. And then at lower peak times when like, you know, hydro is coming on board at 2 a.m., it'll just charge your battery for you. And there's this kind of constant um, back and forth two-way street of electricity. And that is actually really tricky. And so (laughs) the reason that's super tricky is not because of um, anything to do with the way the system operates. Like we could definitely figure out how to do that and handle that. We have smart infrastructure in place to be able to handle that. The tricky thing is with car batteries, they have cycle lives. Right. And right. so the more you charge and discharge the battery, the worse the battery life gets. I'm sure everybody's experienced this with an old phone that just won't hold charge no matter how much you want it to. It only lasts an hour and it's really frustrating and you have the extra charger to charge it wherever you go. 
So you don't want that to happen to your new fancy car that you spent tens of thousands of dollars on. And you don't, who's going to pay to use the battery and who's going to pay for the replacement batteries once you've cycled it too many times? And that is the question that is going to haunt that issue. Um, there are fleets of electric vehicles that can be used as like load, uh, load on demand, but they're own they're either government vehicles or they're owned by the utility. And mm-hmm. so it's that question of where do you draw the line of what somebody owns? Um, if the electric company paid for your battery, heck yeah. Like if you want to pay $20,000 to replace my car batteries that you used, sure, go ahead. Like, might as well but i i have a pretty high uh sneaking suspicion that they're not going to want to pay for that um <laughs> that use of your battery <laughs> yeah, plus what if you're just like craving a blizzard you know and you're like i gotta have some ice cream right now and your car's dead because you, you, you sold your energy may, may, may i suggest uh <laughs> ben and jerry's cherry garcia Ooh, oh that so too good. So oh, good. Well, yeah, you got to get to the grocery store. <laughs> yeah. The remains. Yeah. Bicycles are for, okay? Yeah. yeah. And, and since we're sort of on the topic of electric vehicles, here's something that you have to keep in mind. Right now, the way that the U.S. electricity generation system is designed, we still mostly use fossil fuels to generate electricity. So right now, you, if you buy an electric car and you're powering it with electricity... Um, our current generation mix across the United States, not just for the Western Interconnect where we are, is about 60% fossil fuels, uh, about 19% renewables, and the rest is nuclear. So you still have a 60% ratio there being generated by either you know, fossil fuels or coal, natural gas. Um, and it's just, it's rough. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, and, and another piece. Um, so, for for listeners that that haven't tuned into the show too much, uh, me, Adrian, I study a lot of climate change stuff and carbon cycling, and I it remain absolutely fascinated by the electrical grid transition and electric vehicles and stuff. Mm-hmm. One thing that blew my mind recently, this was from uh, the Volts podcast. Uh, they had uh, somebody interviewed on recently where um, he described half of all miles uh, commuted in the world are actually done by two wheel vehicles. So like little mopeds and scooters. Mm, and yeah. um, and there's this guy who is jumping into this energy market where um, they build the scooters super cheaply, mm-hmm. but all of the money and investment in software and hardware and data tech is in the battery itself. That and you, just, you swap out batteries super quickly. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm just super fascinated by this space because like me, I think of the doom and gloom. Uh, and, <laughs> and and you all, you all thinking of, okay, how are we actually going to make this transition work? Because... Boy, oh boy, do we need to transition our energy system. And it's going to happen one way or another. So, Emily, I'm really glad you are on the case here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try my best. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, actually, this is probably a good transition to maybe step away from the energy power systems grid nerdy talk and ask you how you even found this space. Because this is kind of niche. Although, you know, five years from now, it won't be niche at all. But at least for now, it's kind of unique. Yeah, definitely. And it, it sort of makes me a little sad that it is so unique when it comes to areas of study because we need many more power systems engineers and so if you're an undergraduate listening to this look at electrical look at power systems there's a lot of jobs please please we need more people <laughs> um but 
yeah, I basically, I, I did not get an undergraduate degree in electrical engineering. I got it in biomedical engineering and I worked at a blood gas analyzer company for two years and it was not my cup of tea. Uh, I, it's, they're wonderful people. It's a really cool area to work in, but it is sort of terrifying working on instruments that like make life and death decisions basically. Um, and so that wasn't the world for me. And so I wanted to go back to school and so I was looking at different areas in which I could have a direct impact on either climate change or making the world better in some way, shape, or form. And power systems seemed like a pretty good fit for that, especially how quickly we need to change things, how many more people we need to get all hands on deck to be able to do these sort of things. Um, and so here I am studying power systems. <laughs> I, I, should, I should also ask... Um uh, so me, like I mentioned, I do like mostly ecology, carbon cycling, wildfire type stuff. Maybe mm. we can touch on the fact oh, that definitely. power lines have been contributing to some ignitions of wildfires. Yeah. But me as a forest ecologist also knows that there are many other contributing factors to those wildfires and why mm. they're so big and nasty and why there will be more in the future. But nonetheless, yeah. I am considering a, trans, uh, a career change entirely. So I really want to get your advice here. You went you underwent a career change. So yeah. how, how did that feel? What was maybe the linchpin? Um, like, yeah, can, can you walk us through that, that decision point? Yeah, definitely. So I basically, I got to the point where I was like, you're told day in and day out that like, you should do what you're good at and you should make money doing it. And that's all you really need to consider. But like, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> like being happy and like enjoying what you do and finding meaning in your work is also super important. And also like, I'm super young. And like, even if I was older, like, man, I can't, I, I'm not the type of person who can make myself do something that I don't really like doing. <laughs> um, I'm not, I don't have that much willpower, I will admit. Um, but basically I was at this point where I was super unhappy and uh, I was talking to my friends and they were like, well, you have to be here. And I was like, you're right. I don't have to be here. And so um, I did a lot of research and basically was looking at different options that I had in the area that I was working or um, coming back towards the West Coast because I was on the East Coast at the time. And I just realized that, you know, doing something that I'm more passionate about is going to be a better investment of my time. Um, and it was definitely a difficult decision, especially with like all the different societal pressures that you have on yourself being like, I spent so much time and, and energy getting this degree. What is the point of me doing something that is not this degree I spent four years trying to get? Um, but I sort of like had like a reckoning moment with myself where I was like, hey, like, all school really taught you how to do was solve problems and like figure out how to take a problem, break it down into steps that are doable, and then walk through that process. And if you can figure out how to do that for any other form of engineering, I, I, th I think you can I think you can work work your way to figuring that out. And so for me, at least, I like doing engineering. I like doing the problem solving and practical implication, uh, application of it, but that's with anything. Like your degree teaches you how to think. Your degree teaches you how to look at the world from many different perspectives. And that in itself is a huge, 
huge, powerful gift. And if you're able to use that form of it to whatever you want to study, that's a win. Like that degree was worth it. You spent your time wisely. Like you don't have to feel bad about doing something that you didn't necessarily get a piece of paper saying you know how to do. Yeah. And I mean, what you're talking about is a phenomenon I think a lot of people struggle with. Right? It's even been named the sunk cost fallacy. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> so just, just abandon things. It's okay. Yeah. As, as I'm, you know, year five into a PhD considering a career transition. <laughs> um, Shout out to transferable skills. Uh, yeah. No, really, though. Highly uh, transferable, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's a really great point uh, to maybe uh, end, end this discussion on. But before we truly end, mm -hmm. you know that we have uh, two traditions on the show. The first is that we ask you for advice. So, uh, what is your advice and to whom is it for? Yeah, definitely. I, I think my piece of advice is sort of to anybody out there uh, who is sort of thinking about uh, what they really want to do in life. And my, my piece of advice is remember that you don't know everything. There are always options that you've never considered that are out there. And it's totally okay to take the time to find them. Like, it's okay to take the extra day, week, month, year to look and find a career that you want to do. Um, and, man, it's totally worth the time investment to look and see what there even is out there. Because I didn't even know power systems engineering was a job I could do. I also <laughs> didn't know that, like, creek bed restoration was a job that you can do until I found people who did that as a job. And I was like, that's so cool. So... There's plenty of, there's so many opportunities out there and so many different things that you can do as a career. So don't put yourself in a bucket just saying, I'm an electrical engineer, I can only do this. You can do a lot of different things. Oh, yeah, and then our, our last um, tradition here is a song. What song would you like us to play for your little outro. Yeah, definitely. My favorite song, and I think it's a great summer song, is Super Bloom by Mr. Wives. So um, you mentioned that, uh, especially for summer, mm -hmm. uh, for listeners that are listening on the podcast and on the radio, this will unfortunately be our last episode of the school year. No. I know <laughs> we typically take a break for the summer term. However... Um, there are a number of special episodes we're considering releasing, um, some long-form discussions, uh, some interviews with, uh, with postdocs, uh, maybe a faculty member nearby. So, you know, uh, you won't see us in your feed as often uh, because we, you know, we do research in summer. It's our one time to go in the field and be in the lab and not be bothered by classes and such. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you <laughs> will probably see an episode or two drop every once in a while. But we will be back as always, in the fall quarter with more inspiring stories from graduate students. But with that, Emily, I want to thank you so much for coming on air. I wish you all the best, and thank goodness you are on the case to solve our energy woes. Uh, <laughs> with that, here is the song Super Bloom by Mr. Watt. Enjoy.
Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamath. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Holbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.